Madame Minushka. Yes, madame. My new dress. Yes, madame. Get everything ready. We're going to Paris tomorrow. Tomorrow morning. As soon as possible. Yes, madame. There's a limit to every widow. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1926, and Julia Sermons joins us to discuss, so this is Paris. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here with Julia Sermons. Julia, I have two questions for you. One, this is a statement. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And two, what in God's name drove you to say yes to copying on a podcast episode about a, what, 96-year-old Ernst Lubitsch film as of now? Okay, well, I'll start by saying that I am a writer and teacher of film, both in the academy and outside in mainstream writing. And most of my writing focuses on style in film and television, but mostly film. And I think that interest in the importance of style is what really makes Lubitsch one of my favorite directors. The first Lubitsch film I ever saw was Trouble in Paradise. And to this day, when people ask me to name, you know, one favorite film, what is your one favorite film? I always say Trouble in Paradise. I was a teenager when I saw it and it just totally blew me away. It was just like dazzling and sophisticated and sexy in this way that like (laughs) totally blew my mind. And then once I started studying film academically, very first course I ever took was on Lubitsch. And... I just totally fell in love with this, you know, the Lubitsch touch, I guess you would say, the elegant effervescence that he manages to pull off. And it was so much fun trying to figure out, like, how is he pulling this off? But I think why Lubitsch is so dear to me and has remained so dear to me is that he's very much a confirmation of my own artistic beliefs, which is that it is just as difficult to make art that is witty and stylish as it is to make films that are tragic or dramatic. And that He's always been the like premier example to me of the idea that style can be serious and that we need to be enchanted and delighted and those things be- feed our souls. Yeah, or even that mirth, that humor is a serious art form, right? That it's a film like this where it's even by Lubitsch standards, this film, so this is Paris. It's a little bit of a small, you know, it's a 67 minute bubbly farce, right? It has the greatest moral ever at the end, which is if you are seated next to a window, please put your shirt on. And I think that about sums up the dramatic weight of this movie. And yet it's, I would argue that this film is a piece of maybe not great art, but it's a work of art to be taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think we can get into it, but I think the way it takes questions of marriage and adultery and fidelity and female desire, like those are all, we're supposed to laugh gently at all those things in this movie, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to take them seriously at the same time. Like, especially on the question of female desire, I think. It really gives you what Lubitsch does so well in terms of sectoring female desire. Just to kind of loop back to your thoughts on Trouble in Paradise and your kind of feelings on Lubitsch as a whole. Are there any kind of you know moments or through lines in his films that specifically more than other directors, even comedy directors, even like, you know, I mean, the 30s and 40s especially were, at least in my opinion, such a great time for screen romantic comedies. What sets Lubitsch apart from like, you know, a Hawks or a Sturges or any of the other kind of directors that might even be more well known in this era? What about him speaks to you personally? I think 
I wouldn't really call most of Lubitsch's films from these era romantic comedies in the same way that like some of the screwballs or the comedies of remarriage or whatever are romantic comedies. I think these are really like farces about sex, Mm. which is not to say they have no depth. I think like one of the reasons Trouble in Paradise is so great is that it's this really sexy plot and sexy characters, but it also is like asking you like, well, what happens when you're in love with two people at the same time? And what do you do about that? And there's real weight to that. But I think like the visual wit and elegance of Lubitsch's films comes a lot from the suggestion of sex Mm. and the question of sex and sex happening in a way that is much less foregrounded in most of the Sturges or Ox films, I think. Yeah, it's almost, I mean, the phrase comedy of remarriage sums it up, right? Where it's it's less about the sex part and more about the finding your soulmate or rediscovering your love for your partner versus Lubitsch, which is more, you know, it's the politics of how people copulate. <laughs> yeah, and I think like, and so this is Paris, certainly, we don't really understand these marriages as between two people who we totally fully understand, you know, they're kind of more tropes of neglected wives horny Mm -hmm. or suspicious (laughs) husbands, you know, they uh, fill these tropes that come from this like European theatrical tradition of farce in a way that I think makes Lubitsch stand out. This is where I guess we can start to really dig into this film because it opens by introducing one of the two couples in what I've come to discover is very common for Lubitsch of this era is he introduces the B couple first, Georgette and Maurice. You're introduced to Paul and Suzanne as observers of these two. And the whole film is this It's another marriage circle. It's another game between these four people as they constantly rearrange themselves romantically. Yeah. Can we talk about that opening? Because it is amazing. The first thing we see is what looks like this very like dramatic silent film scene where you have Valentino style chic and a turban and a quivering, simpering white lady in a belly dancer costume. And he is chasing her to the couch and he stabs. Then... Very slowly, the camera pans and we see a piano player and we realize that this has all just been a performance, that the the silent movie we're watching is not, in fact, going to be a Valentino sexy orientalist adventure, but a comedy. And I think like right off the bat, it just shows you this theme of marriage and fantasy and how marriage needs or plays into fantasy in a way that really sums up the plot in terms of like disaffected spouses and the need for excitement. Yeah, the dramatic thrust of the film revolves entirely around these people fantasizing about one another, I guess. You have Suzanne, who is the doctor's wife. She's reading this romantic novel. There's a great intertitle about it. The books are wise read when we're away, which comes from a very specific point of view, but also I think it's very funny. And, you know, her fantasy becomes reality when she sees the sheik through the window and, you know, it's constantly reinforced her kind of selective viewpoint. There's this lovely scene where, you know, it's a typical Lubitsch window shot where he's leaning forward and in and out of the view of the window. And it's kind of suggestive, but, you know, the reveal is he's eating a hard boiled or I don't know if it's hard or soft boiled, but it's an egg. He's eating an egg. He's having his breakfast. So we see her selectively kind of curating this idea of this person in her head. And we really see her get all hot and bothered. Like she's finishing her romance book and she's clearly a little <laughs> flustered. And then when she sees him at the window and she's watching his head move up and down, she's sort of getting like dazzled and dizzy in a way that is very funny and charming. And I think also shows 
how Lubitsch treats female desire. We see a bit of his typical kind of his freewheeling approach to kind of heteronormativity where, you know, you have the slight running joke between Maurice and Paul. I think that Maurice is coded as at least bisexual in this. And Paul kind of gets himself into circumstances where he's either complimenting Maurice, you know, I saw you in the window and I wanted to come over and to say how great you looked in the window. Or when he thinks that Maurice is complimenting his profile, when he's actually complimenting his wife's profile. Each man needs the other man to find him beautiful. Yes, they need the affirmation. And the fact that, again, Lubitsch presents all this with not a single hint of like queer panic is, I think, wonderful and runs kind of counter to what I'm used to <laughs> in films of this vintage. So it's it's a lovely little detail again. And I think, you know, like Lubitsch's career making the silent comedies at this point was so much about selling, you know, sexy fantasy Europe where like anything goes, you know. So I think the idea that you could have that undertow is indicative of like the world he was creating for audiences where it's just like, well, anything goes. It's Paris, you know, <laughs> and just that like view of kind of libertinism and sexual freedom that was promised in his vision of Paris that he is giving to an American audience. Do you think that situating his stories in another place constantly, do you think that gives him more of a license at this point to kind of play fast and loose with obscenity, you might call it? Yeah, I mean... Like to be obscene kind of literally means to show everything, mm -hmm. but to be very explicit while also being very suggestive, I think is Lubitsch's great gift. I think that might be the Lubitsch touch, actually. And I do think that it was like this vicarious look at a continental world where you could just, there's just, everybody's very rich and sophisticated and they have fabulous parties and life just kind of bubbles along. And I think it was definitely to give you that kind of sensory pleasure and to let you live vicariously in this atmosphere. And then you can just go home and have your apple pie or whatever and be like, oh, those Europeans, <laughs> how odd they are. I find it interesting, depending on the film, the vast majority of Ernst Lubitsch's American films are set in Europe, but he really calibrates film by film how specific he is. So, for example, in The Marriage Circle, it's Vienna, but it's not really Vienna. It's Wherever'sville, Backlot, LA. It could be anywhere, kind of. But in something like Student Prince in Old Heidelberg, it's very specifically a sub-state of what would become Germany. It's a very specific time and place. And this film is somewhere in between for me, where it is a little bit, it's more Paris than the marriage circle is Vienna, but it still feels to me geographically diffuse in a way that I found interesting. Yeah, because like so much of the activity is between the houses, right? It's like the going back and forth between the bourgeois apartments and the farce of that and the hijinks that ensue, <laughs> like returning the cane and, you know, all these exchanges between the two couples that ignite the adulterous. We don't know exactly how adulterous they are, but I think we can say adulterous relationships. So it's really them going back and forth and the shots of Monsieur Lallet going back and forth to the presumably seduce Suzanne. So it really is about bourgeois households in a sense and like how that relates to marriage and desire and those questions. I think it definitely is like focused in a domestic sphere that doesn't give us a bigger sense of Paris. But when we get to the artist ball, mm -hmm. Isn't the artist ball Paris? It's like, I'm going to give you, you want Paris, 
I'm going to give you Paris. There's a few threads we can pull out there because one is I'm glad that you pointed out the fact that so much of the film takes place between the two houses because most of the exterior shots for the first half of the film, at least, it's just one setup. Right. You have that one shot, the wide shot that has both doorways and people crossing over. And I mean, in another director's hands, it might feel lazy, like, oh, they had the one set up and they just got people to walk. But in this case, it feels like a very deliberate repetition. Every time it happens, it's a punchline that, you know, it's almost like a little cue to remind us that Maurice can walk across and have his affair immediately. (laughs) It's a wonderful little button. But the party, I mean, we could probably record a whole podcast episode about the party. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's. I had forgotten about it and it's just like dazzling and it's incredibly constructed. It reminds me of, this is something that I hadn't recorded this episode of Pierre Labuza yet before I'd seen this film for the first time way back when. But it really now reminds me of Vorkovich's work. He was known for his kind of really over-the-top montages. We did a Film Formerly episode on it back with Peter. He would create these kind of superimposed kaleidoscopic images. And this was a little before his heyday. At this point, I'm wondering if Borkovich saw this and maybe took some cues from it or otherwise. Yeah, I think there's a lot of experimental filmmaking of the era being brought into it. Mm-hmm. I actually thought a bit of like Fernand Leger and some of his movies. And I would assume that Lubitsch was aware of them. Maybe you know better his biography than I do at this point. But I think it's something that like it is very striking in his kind of like modernity. There are precedents in Lubitsch's career, especially in The Oyster Princess, where there is a massive, it's the, what is it, the dance epidemic that occurs at the Oyster King's household. There's nothing quite as ambitious as this scene here, but you have split screen, you have cutting on this rhythm. And in this one, you know, that is combined with these kaleidoscopic images, tons of superimpositions. It's a frenzy. Yeah, I think I, in my notes, I have like legs, sex, frenzy (laughs) somewhere describing that scene. And it just seems to me like he's really using more kind of experimental techniques as a way of kind of being both frenzied and sly, you know, that like we still have these kind of like little vignettes of men ogling, dancing women and stuff. And then we have these like patterns of legs that are more abstract. And so we go back and forth between these things. I mean, I think it kind of really works on this level of like, so this is Paris, like Mm -hmm. this is the fun you're missing by not being in Paris. (laughs) It's a good advertisement. I think what I noticed in this scene, this time having kind of gone through his Berlin work, which is full of party scenes, is that there is a kind of density to the inference here and to the implication where you have, I mean, just the kind of specificity of the repeated shots of the dancer's legs as they do the Charleston. And then you have that beautiful little dissolve to Suzanne doing her own little version at home. Yeah. There's a slight bit of melancholy there that is nowhere in something like The Oyster Princess. You also have the way that the film doesn't take its eye off the ball of character dynamics during the scene. You have Paul with Georgette and the kind of way that, you know, it becomes increasingly clear that to Georgette, at least, this is a this is one of numerous men she'll be with tonight. (laughs) Georgette is going hard at this party. (laughs) Yes, she is fully living her life. Yeah, she just every time we see a shot of her doing the Charleston, she's just swinging her feather headdress around and laughing like she is good to go for the whole evening. (laughs) (laughs) And I think poor Dr. Giro is not going to be able to keep up as we see. (laughs) No, he's he's once again, I mean, it's the motif of the men in these films and these farces generally come up short, literally and figuratively in this case. You also have the 
think it's the first time I've seen this in a Lubitsch film, the optically printed titles that tell us what's being said on the radio. I have no grand thesis yeah. there. I just thought that was really cool. It was beautiful. little aside here about the score. I thought that this was, I've suffered through some scores on this podcast. <laughs> Some interesting silent film attempts to either match the era or clearly lazy attempts that don't really amount to anything. This is a good example of a, during the party scene of a very minimal silent film score. This, the version I watched was the version that at one point was on HBO Max. And it has this wonderful little organ score by Bed Modal that I thought worked fantastically for the film. And during the party scene, it manages to have this propulsive energy to it that I'm not used to in some of these organ scores, some of which can be a bit rote. I wanted to talk about the first thing that I noticed, right, is we talked about the like fake out introduction with the chic murdering the beautiful white woman. We find out this is all fake. This is like for some kind of pantomime performance. And then Maurice, who's playing the role of the chic in whatever show this is, has to practice the moves for his dance of the forbidden fruit. Mm -hmm. He has to do these repetitive motions where he like puts his hand on his heart and then moves one hand and then puts it on his head and then moves one hand. And then like when he's in real distress, he is supposed to put his arms straight up over his head and waggle <laughs> his hands. And we see him rehearsing this for like quite some time. And it's just so it's hilarious how much he's just going through the motions like he's doing these poses very mechanically and his face is just completely expressionless. And it's like. This is marriage right now. Like, right, we're going through the motions. <laughs> this mm. is where we are at the state. And I think it just is such a, like I said, such a visually witty way for Lubitsch to bring up this theme of like people in marriages that have stalled and that are like trying to bring some fantasy into the relationship and how that's not quite enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious as to how this extends to the Gerouds, Suzanne and Paul. What's the nature of each of their fantasies in this case. Well, Suzanne, Madame Giraud, it's her fantasy and her gaze really that kicks the whole thing off. Mm -hmm. She has like this very quotidian, very kind of like embarrassing fantasy of these, you know, hot Arab romances, I believe they are referred to in the <laughs> card. And right, as you said, they're the books our wives read when we're away. So it's kind of like a pulpy, sexy romance novel. But she's so into it and she's so into the chic fantasy and there she sees it before her but she's really trying you know like when her husband comes home with Dr. Dero comes home she tries to like then put her fantasy onto her husband and she embraces him and she says my hero my chic and his response <laughs> is to take out a thermometer and check and see if she <laughs> has a temperature and it's just like all these ways that eroticism and fantasy like are not working <laughs> to help the marriages and then we enter into this like hodgepodge of adultery after we're trying to make these things work each character's reaction to those fantasies and desires i found deeply entertaining because you have paul Gerard who cannot seem to fathom that his wife has desires and her own reaction to her kind of guilt over her own desires drives her to basically sick her husband onto Maurice and Georgette, where, you know, she tells him, go and give them what for, for being in the window and, you know, in parenthesis, awakening my desires or reifying them. And that's the basis of the dramatic irony of the film, right? Where, you know, he starts lying about his demeanor and his own defense to kind of defend her honor when what he's really doing, he's, you know, acting out her own guilt. Yeah, I think she just wants him to be to do something. Mm -hmm. She just wants him to do something passionate so she can kind of like rekindle her passion. And then, of course, she ends up seeing what she sees through the window is 
she thinks she's seeing that, but she's really seeing, <laughs> you know, her husband with another woman, with Georgette, who he'd had a past relationship with. And that whole reveal is so the scene where, you know, Georgette starts recounting their, you know, previous affairs and then, you know, starts, you know, and he goes, I don't recognize that one. You know, the, the, <laughs> are you sure it was I? Yeah. And, you know, immediately we establish varying degrees of horniness of each character all at once. Yeah. And it's so, like I say, like, I think Lewis has a very kind of or can have a very kind of permissive, empathetic stance on adultery. And I think like it's hard to moralize at Georgette. It's hard to be too censorious towards her because she's just so much fun. <laughs> and, like mm-hmm. the thing that I really liked in this scene where Giro and Georgette are reunited and they're talking about their past escapades, they're just laughing so hard the whole time. It's not really like, ooh la la, do you remember when I did this to you? It was like just laughing about the adventures they had. Some of which are probably sex, but Lubitsch is, you know, again, eliding things. I think one of the great things that Lubitsch did in the silent era was really making things suggestive or hazy by having a very long scene of dialogue then followed by a very short title. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's very fun in that season. It's like, do you remember when we did dot dot dot? And then they're laughing and laughing and laughing about it. But we we're not privy to what exactly they did. I found that very charming and very Lubitsch. His faculty with creating this collaborative atmosphere with his audiences grows and grows where, I mean, this film I should mention is a not a remake, but this film and The Mary Jail from 1917 are based off of different adaptations of the same source material, which is very interesting. But that film was an interesting case for me where it felt like he's trying to do what he's succeeding at here in terms of those title cards. In that film, there were kind of two problems, in my opinion, with this conceit. One is that he would have characters talking and then have that kind of rhythm that none of us like of characters talking. Title card says exactly what they're talking. The characters are just there to flat their mouths while we read title cards. And the second thing, which I found more interesting, was that in that film, you had a lot of cases where he wouldn't show you a title card, but there wasn't enough information in the characters, the way they were speaking, their body language, the movement, the gestures to let us in on what they were saying or the general thrust of it. And by this point, same source material-ish. It's uh, two generations removed. He is pulling out all these tricks to bring us into those moments and to, you know, again, help us, as Dave Kerr would say, collaborate in the creation of the film. You know, you have like moments where, like you just mentioned, you have a title card with a little bit of an inference and they're laughing about it. And the juxtaposition is what creates new meaning or even stuff as simple as the writing of the English language dialogue. You have like Monte Blue mouthing very obviously, my wife, my wife, you know, and you can hear it in your head. And because of the simplicity of that line, you don't need a title card. Combined with the added nuance and the direction of all the performances, this is a very title card light movie in that way. Did that hamper your enjoyment, the lack of title cards? Oh, not at all. I think the thing that's happening is that Lubitsch is getting better and better at finding ways to give us, the audience, the information we need to understand character beats and dynamics without resorting to simply using title cards. I totally agree. And I just think one of my favorite definitions of the Lubitsch touch is from the film critic called Raymond Dernia, and he said... The Lubitsch touches both ellipsis and emphasis. And I think what I really was reminded of when I watched this again is the way Lubitsch learned to use silent cinema to do Mm -hmm. that kind of ellipsis and emphasis. 
especially as he got to be a better visual storyteller. And he would build punchlines out of denying us the explicit line, right? It's all over this film and over the student prints, the next film in the series. And, you know, moments where by not showing us the title card, by having two characters maybe whispering and laughing, it's funnier because we don't know what they're saying. The gap between our knowledge and the characters know is the joke. Do you have more you'd like to talk about in terms of the desires of the women in this movie? Yeah, I think Luvid takes female desire very seriously in terms of like putting the focus on it and, you know, arguing that it exists for women as much as it exists for man. And the whole opening of the film, like the these people never would have met. It's like a lady reading a bodice ripper novel <laughs> had, you know, found her desire waiting for her in the window across the way. And I think like I was saying, like where she's trying to get her husband to participate in her fantasy or to fulfill a role for her, you know, everything springs from her desire. And I think what's interesting and which happens definitely in later films, but also probably in earlier Lubitsch films, is that the men are the ones who first come to commit adultery and are pretty eager to commit adultery. But women always kind of get their own back. So what happens is that Giro is supposed to go to jail for three days because he got a speeding ticket <laughs> and he has already left the house and his wife is being seduced by Maurice the sheep in her home after he's left to go be with Georgette and not actually go to jail. So they are embracing Maurice and Suzanne there in Giro's house and the police come in and mistake him for Giro and they take him to jail. And <laughs> Maurice gets the bum end of the stick in this whole kerfuffle. Oh, yes. But he agrees to go in the place of Giro. And his price for this is three kisses from Suzanne that he <laughs> takes before he gets carted off to jail. We should specify it's not just like three kisses. It's a prolonged scene where he insists on, wait, 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 I have something to do. And he goes back. It's lovely. Yeah, he's kind of a big sweetie, Maurice. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so... Suzanne eventually finds out that Euro did not go to jail and was out partying with Georgette. She lays the law down and she says, no more of this. I'm going to be the top dog in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And he actually shrinks. There's a special <laughs> effect where Giro shrinks down to the size of like a little toddler. And the woman may commit adultery, but she kind of gains power and she ends up on top in the end. And... The next scene we see of the two of them is they're like at breakfast and they're two little lovey doveys sitting right next to each other and having their hot chocolate. And a newspaper comes in saying that, oh, Giro went to jail after embracing his wife. And Suzanne is sure she's gotten caught and that he'll know that she committed adultery as well. But he just laughs it off and is like, oh, you can't believe what you read in the papers. And so, you know, like she completely gets away with mm -hmm. it. And the fact that he like can't even conceive of his wife. <laughs> doing something like this, like redounds to her benefit and she wins at the end. You know, I don't know if wins is the right word, but she comes out with more power in the relationship. I find it interesting the politics of truth in Lubitsch's movies of this period, especially where in something like The Marriage Circle, everyone keeps their secrets in that movie. The truth never comes out. And in this film, it's lopsided where you have all his secrets spill out. Right. I mean, I love that he is so enthusiastic about his patient dying because then he gets to save face. But aside from that, I mean, his presence at the party, his adultery, Suzanne finds out all of it. But Suzanne gets to keep her secrets. And that therefore gives her power <laughs> over the relationship. 
I mean, I guess it's even more twisted because her secret comes out. Paul doesn't believe it because he's too incredulous to believe the truth when it's right in front of him. Yeah. And I think there is a larger theme in movies, just films that like women ought to and deserve to have secrets more than men do. And like that gives them some power in the world, I would say. But I think, yeah, I think there is this overall thread where like women definitely suffer less for adultery, but also adultery is just kind of okay. (laughs) Like it's going to be fine is the attitude. Like we have our one night of fun and then it's nothing but a dream and everyone can go back to where they belong. Again, I think this is like a very continental European idea that is enticing the American audience. There's this, it's that again, that his refusal to judge his characters for their tomfoolery. He doesn't romanticize his characters, mostly, but he does refrain from asking us to judge them when they air. And they air a lot in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. And like the other thing I thought about female desire was if you compare it to something like the marriage circle, like Georgette, the adulteress and the one who kind of initiates the affair, she's not really demonized as a scheming man eater. It's just hard not to love her because she's just got so much energy and joie de vivre and it's hard to really condemn her. Mm. Uh, I think Lillian Tashman is just like great in this role. And so like when we see her at the artist ball, it's just like no man can keep up with her. She needs <laughs> she needs enough men to like keep her going. And I think that was very refreshing and charming. Yeah, it's I feel like I'm probably leaning too much on like it reminds me of other Lubitsch's because this has all been watching recently. But it really does feel like a continuation of his his morality, which is that less about are you following classical virtue or whatever? It's not that it's how much joy are you bringing to yourself into the world? (laughs) How interesting and entertaining are you to watch? Therefore, you're good. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the sort of marriage films and the adultery, there is this like perhaps utopian, but consistent belief that the adultery can be useful because it can bring you towards a new appreciation to your husband or wife. You can see each other differently and understand each other better for afterwards. It's almost this kind of pyrrhic defeat. (laughs) What's the opposite of a pyrrhic victory? I don't know. But it's a almost a uh, a crucible that the relationship goes through in this case to come out better on the other side. Because I think with the exception of Maurice, I think at least the Gerauds, come out of this happier than when they entered. It came at the expense of one sad dancer who is now in jail for another two days. But aside from that, the droughts seem to have never been better. And maybe that this is a cycle, right? Maybe this is something that has to happen to the relationship every once in a while to keep it fresh. Yeah. And every the nature of the couples remain the same, you know, like Georgette and Maurice, presuming he doesn't need to get out of prison, <laughs> are kind of these bohemians with sort of more laissez-faire ideas about sexuality and sex with other people. And then the Giro's are back to like the kind of like perfect lovey-dovey bourgeois couple. So we sort of, you know, equilibrium is maintained. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a Lubitsch theme, right? Like a Trouble in Paradise, I think definitely is like, yeah, you may love somebody else. You may desire somebody else deeply, but there's somebody who suits your life and who knows you best. And that's who you belong with. But, you know, Occasional hygiene's allowed. Yeah, his films are, I mean, if we're going to take the very prescriptive view that a lot of screenwriting teachers <laughs> and books take of, you know, the standard three-act structure of status quo, disruption, new status quo, Lubitsch's films often don't establish new status quo. They return to the old, right? It's a status quo, disruption, 
back to the way things are. It's a cycle. And then like design for living is really interesting. Oh, that one. I mean, your work on that, I'm going to put your work on that in the show notes too, but I'd love to hear your further thoughts on how this applies to that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it really is a touching film because it is about people who care about each other and are like in their kind of madcap ways, like really trying hard to find some way to love and support each other and just can't, they can't make it work with any kind of coupledom between them. And it's like only at the rest when they're three together. And, you know, it takes Miriam Hopkins' character, you know, marrying this wealthy man to realize that like conformity is not for her and she needs freedom and she needs this unconventional relationship. And so we're back at the beginning in the status quo in the sense that the two men rescue her and they're clearly going to be with her. You know, they're all going to live together. And she says what she said before as they're driving away. She says, no sex. We're not having sex with each other. And obviously they're going to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> like anything Lubitsch would do, everything Lubitsch does throughout the whole film, it's like they're obviously going to have sex. <laughs> hmm. So... There is this way in which like the return to the status quo maybe offers more flexibility or it's just a winking nod to the status quo when we know things are going to really things are going to be more fun <laughs> than the status quo. I think Design for Living is a great film to bring up here, especially because I think it embodies that cycle where very rarely in a Lubitsch film, you get the sense that at the end, there is a sustainable status quo that will just go on indefinitely without further disruption. And that's a standard, in quotes, big air quotes, standard comedy like this that ends in a marriage, the traditional way a comedy ends, you have a, okay, maybe not the fun's over, but the incidence is over. Now things continue on a straight line until one or the other dies that over the age of 80 or whatever. But in something like Design for Living, you have this kind of promise of more disruption, right? The three of them have promised no sex, but they're going to have sex. There's a tension there that is unresolved and you know that they're going to have a awesome lives but they're going to be eventful lives yeah and it's just like there's a kind of prurient like well how is this going to work exactly like who's going to have sex with who you know <laughs> yeah i just think there's always that kind of wink you mm -hmm. know like happily ever after but wink wink and that's maybe an example of the lubitsch touch too it's just that extra emphasis of like but you know and i know that this is going to turn out differently mm -hmm. One little recurring thing I noticed I thought was lovely is, again, the use of objects to express a character's state of mind or dynamics, right? My favorite maybe in this film is, it's a subtle little moment, but I loved it. It's late in the party. The party's been going on for a while, and we haven't really seen Paul in a few scenes. And he is introduced, his current most inebriated state is introduced when we cut to a bottle of champagne underneath the table. And all we see is legs kind of slightly exhaustedly dancing on all sides. And we see a hand come in, a man's hand, who we can assume is Paul, very drunkenly groping for the wine bottle. He misses a couple of times. He picks it up and in the most drunken way possible, drags it out of frame. And that tells us everything we need to know about where Paul's at. You know, he doesn't have to say yeah. in the Mary Jail, there's actually a similar under the table scene where we see Harry Leadkey lying under the table. And there's a title card where he looks drunk and says, I don't feel so good. Something like that. And this is so much more effective. <laughs> there's so many legs, too. Yes. I, mean, I don't think we even got to the part where like all the columns in this club are shaped like women's legs and mm -hmm. you uh, you're like already in the position of looking up someone's skirt the minute you walk into the <laughs> party 
One thing with the party and the jail, too, I want to talk quickly about the way that this film is so economical because the Mary Jail is right there. And it's a great comparison. That episode came out, what, two days ago. <laughs> so it's on the mind. But in the Mary Jail, again, similar plot where man goes to the party when he's supposed to be going to jail and the wife follows him, you know, masked in a masquerade. And in the case of the Mary Jail, the party goes on for over half of the film's runtime. And we see a extended set of set pieces in the jail when the other man obviously goes in, in that case, Harry Leakey's place. And in that case, it feels like we're watching three movies at once. All the plot lines kind of have their own thing going on. It's a significant problem with that film. In this case, you know, the party, we see less of the party, but we see none of the jail. We see one shot of Maurice you know, in, I guess, Yang. like a chain gang. Yeah. He's walking. It's, it's very funny. But aside from that, we see nothing. And I can't help but think that that great decisions all around, especially not drawing out Suzanne's time at the party. It's purely a plot device thing. She goes to the party, basically leaves with her husband after about two minutes. This lets us focus more on the little details of the interplay between, you know, the little chess game between the two couples, right? Where it's more about them rearranging themselves in small ways, how their desires shift and their fantasies shift than it is about, oh, let's track every single moment of each person's day. So there's much less of that, you know, accountant's cinema, accountant's storytelling in this. And I thought that was, it's great to see this kind of, I always love when I can see an artist revisit a story, even though, again, two generations removed from it, and make clear, not improvements, I don't like to make it like a singularity thing, but sophistication of his storytelling and the minimalism through which he accomplishes it here is incredible. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were asking about, you know, where does this sit into Lubitsch's career? And I really felt after seeing it again that it was sort of like a pivot point between the marriage circle and one hour with you, mm -hmm. the musical, which tells the same story as a marriage circle. But I feel like it, the kind of lightness and simplicity of So This Is Paris really kind of travels over. And again, as the idea that, you know, like, People are going to go have their fun for a night and it's going to be fine. And it's a lot less tragic and it's a lot more lighthearted and convivial. And I think you can see, so this is Paris as the point through which he changes that story and tells it in a new way and in a, a musical form. So. Mm -hmm, exactly. And the film doesn't waste a beat. It's 67 minutes and there is nothing you could cut from it, I think. <laughs> One Hour With You and the comparison between that and I've actually, I'm kind of holding off on rewatching One Hour With You because I'm trying to kind of let myself be properly surprised by it when it comes up. I'll probably be watching it in a month or two. But the comparison between that and The Marriage Circle is also interesting, right? Where The Marriage Circle is so much more about two couples and also two other tertiary characters who've entered frequently, while One Hour With You really focuses on the two leads. Right, you focus on Chevalier and McDonald and everyone else is a function of their character arcs. It's interesting how he's just taking things away. He's removing elements. It's that quote he had. I forget when he said it, but I think it was in response to seeing a woman of Paris. Lubitsch said, you know, he was making smaller films now because how many times can you show thousands of people, which is what he would do frequently in his Berlin years. Artistic growth by subtraction. I always love. That's why I'm yeah. a Ramones fan. And he did always add in his subtractions. That's his genius. Like mm -hmm. his subtractions can become additions. And the additions are always in the small little details. It's almost, I think we're at that kind of the real crux of that inflection point where he's really making efforts to just cut away everything that's extraneous to the things he clearly wants to do. On the other hand, though, 
this film was made at one of the most tumultuous periods in Lubitsch's career. At this point, Lubitsch is kind of, he's right at the end of his Warner Brothers period, right? He was hired by the Warners in the early mid-20s. Marriage Circle was his first work with them. And at this point, the relationship is completely soured, completely. And I do want to read a couple of pieces of correspondence between Jack, Harry, and Ernst. Oh, please. So at this point, Lubitsch was making noises about wanting to leave the studio. His films were profitable. None of them lost money, but they didn't make as much money as they had hoped. And most importantly, his films were not popular in Europe. European audiences were not buying his American films. So in January 26, Lubitsch offered to buy out his contract, to which Harry Warner replied in the telegram, Not interested separating until expiration contract. Don't act hasty. We'll discuss same when I return. In a concurrent wire to Jack, Harry said, Lubitsch must make more thrilling picture and not worry so much about story. His pictures are over people's heads. Kiss me again, taken off, wherever played, after three days. Show him this Schlesinger report. Same story, weakness Germany and Central Europe. Stop. Don't let him kill himself before making big picture. Another cable. Don't discuss parting with him. He's looking for an out. Don't start big picture with him. Until I return, we'll then handle him personally. Just let him make picture to finish this year. And that picture is this one. So this is Paris. Harry wired Lubitsch with, and I'm going to, I'm saying these wires word for word. So all the grammatical errors and shorthand are original. Unnecessary get excited because someone interested mutually with you calls your attention to what they observe. So this is him laying down the law to Lubitsch. You have picked your own stories and made your own pictures without interference, but made them too subtle. The world wants thrill and excitement. Stop. As discussed with you, we want you to make still bigger picture hereafter, but you should listen to what the world wants to protect your own reputation. Stop. We are thoroughly satisfied with you and pictures, and when I return, we'll endeavor to make very long-term contract with you to start at expiration of present contract. This is where Lubitsch steps in. Lubitsch replied to Harry, Agree with you that European market expects only big pictures from me. Stop. It is very unfortunate for me that for past three years, I had neither means nor chance to make big pictures, and you have no one but yourself to blame. That my talents are wasted thusly. Stop. Situation has reached point where both of us are equally dissatisfied, and I take this opportunity to suggest that for our mutual benefit, we separate after next pictures. Harry tells Jack. Tell Lubitsch not to act like baby. Can't one call his attention? His pictures, great, but subtle. He has picked stories, never wanted, make what we asked him. And so it goes on and on and on. And this culminates with, by August 1926, Paramount pays Warner Brothers $150,000 to buy out Lubitsch's contract. And then Lubitsch returns 3000 Warner Brothers had advanced him. So he's out by August of 1926. And again, between those telegrams and August 1926, he makes this movie. So when they say big picture, are they talking about like Rosita and Madame Dubarry? They want that style of Lubitsch? They want epics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were expecting, because that was what he was most famous for, right? It was Madame Dubarry, Annabelle Lynn, the giant, you know, loves of the Pharaoh, you know, the cast of thousands. They wanted that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not like it's bad. <laughs> no. So I, my understanding is that the Warner contract was like very good for him in that very like, good. he gave up a lot of freedom. Yeah, which is interesting. So, and he made full use of that freedom. And I think they just gave him that contract under the understanding that he would use it to make films like Madame Dubarry. And he didn't. He used it to make films like A Woman of Paris. 
And so then where does he go next? Paramount. And that is where he makes The Student Prince, which is the next film we cover. Oh, I haven't seen that since my college days. I'm excited to have you guys look at it. Oh, yeah. I'll say it's my favorite Lubitsch silent film. And that's saying a lot. Oh, wow. I have a, it's not a good version of Student Prince, but it's the best available version. And it has an amazing Carl Davis score, but it's, it'll tear your heart out. A couple other like little side things that occurred during this time that I found fascinating. Warner Brothers had grown to dislike, especially Hans Crowley, who is Lubitsch's writing partner up until Eternal Love, after which Hans runs away with Lubitsch's wife <laughs> that ends their partnership. But at this point, Warner Brothers does not like Hans and ends up in a very passive aggressive move. They pay Lubitsch $10,000 for the script for this film and say, if he wants another writer, he'll have to pay him himself. So Lubitsch gives all $10,000 to Crowley. And that's that. So they were trying to encourage Lubitsch to sever his creative partnership. I guess they weren't enthused with what the subtleties of Hans. Yeah. Well, it's also fascinating that they didn't do well in Europe. In the Scott Amon book, he chalks it up to European audiences not having much use for American depictions of Europe. Yeah, that makes sense, right? And it makes sense that like it's a fantasy Europe. And I think somebody said that Lubitsch's films are made in a Europe that's fading away or maybe never existed. Mm-hmm. All the made up countries. Yeah. And like, that's definitely what Wes Anderson is doing in his tribute to him in Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, yes. Like, is this Europe real? Is it salvageable? Or did it, is it all in someone's imagination? That film, that's one of my favorite movies. And that's actually the film that got me into Lubitsch in the first place. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually, so my like Lubitsch origin story is that I first saw Trouble in Paradise when it came out on Criterion DVD and Wes Anderson did like a little sketch for it. He like did a sketch of Lubitsch with his cigar oh, really? like, in the like leaflet that came with the DVD and like Anderson was so important to me at that time as a filmmaker that like for all the reasons I said at the top of the interview, like his style and his sense of like meaning and feeling being communicated to you through style choices like that made me reach out to Lubitsch more I think because like knowing that somebody who had that kind of sensibility like to this stuff I think also influenced me probably. One of my favorite things is finding artists via you can discover so many great artists that are a little more under the radar by first getting used to a popular artist <laughs> and for me that's probably the single most clear example for me is Weston Lubitsch, where I watched Grand Budapest Hotel probably three times in a row when it came out. I was just fell in love with that movie. It was the film that actually turned me around on Wes. I wasn't huge on Wes for a while because I didn't like Moonrise Kingdom, etc. And then Grand Budapest, I'm like, what? It's amazing to see an artist just, in my opinion, just transcend themselves. It's his masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. I agree. And then uh, just in quick succession, I listened to the commentary of that film. That he talks up to be or not to be in The Merry Widow a ton in that commentary. And then a couple of people I know also referenced to be or not to be. So that's what got me. That was my first The Bitch Front was to be or not to be. And I've been watching to be or not to be so much lately just because it feels so like relevant to our time <laughs> you know in terms of like we've all been running around like chickens with their heads cut off feeling like there are all these malevolent like morons <laughs> running our lives and like is it okay to laugh at them or does laughing at them do anything and stuff and like just that knowing what he knew he decided yeah no we're gonna make this a joke we're gonna expose this for the foolishness it is and to know that that was the right choice it's like incredible 
that he pulled that off and made such an incredible film in those circumstances. Oh, yeah. And kind of learning more about his reaction to the response is very heartening to me because he actually put in an op-ed in a newspaper defending that movie after it was roundly criticized, or maybe not roundly, but it was massively controversial. And he basically went to bat for it. He didn't like, he didn't immediately go, oh, this, you know, uh, uh, not a success, which is what a lot of think, filmmakers would do in that point. But he uh, had the courage of his convictions on his highly controversial <laughs> Nazi satire, which I thought for a filmmaker mostly known for comedies, the degree to which he was thoughtful and took his work seriously and was aware of the ethics of what he was doing at all times, I thought was, for me, very inspirational. Yeah. And to just really know that was the right thing to do when you're living under those conditions and it's so unclear what artist responses should be, you know, it's just it's amazing. Especially in his later career when you read what he's writing and his thoughtfulness and the degree to which he even his minor works, he just, I mean, Ninochka was a, for example, I think Ninochka is great. And it was a project for hire. It was a film that he had no desire to make. And yet out comes this endlessly thoughtful, lovely work by an artist who's clearly fully engaged, even though while making it, he was more focused on the negotiations for Shop Around the Corner, which is the film he actually wanted to make. And Ninochka is all about Paris. As well. <laughs> the fantasy of Paris. You could argue Greta Garbo falls in love less with Melvin Douglas and more with Paris itself. It's a great way to put it. And I mean, that is my favorite depiction of Paris in a Lubitsch film. And it's one of my favorite depictions of Paris ever, even though it's as real as the Paris in Ratatouille. Could not be more artificial, but it gets at what I love about the city as a tourist. One other little detail I should probably mention here, because I'm not going to have another opportunity to, because I've already recorded the Student Prince episode and I didn't get to there is that at this point, Charles Van Anger, who is a cinematographer for Lubitsch, this is according to Van Anger, so grain of salt, but apparently he was the person who brought the jazz singer to Lubitsch's attention, who then saw potential in it and brought it to Warner Brothers' attention. And Warner Brothers reluctantly buys the jazz singer. Lubitsch was on track to direct it, then he left. So I wonder what the alternate history would be if Lubitsch stays at Warner Brothers and makes one last film there, The Jazz Singer. I'm glad he didn't <laughs> for a few reasons, but that would have been a trip. There are so many points in Lubitsch's career where he could have taken another route and same with any career, but the more you kind of mentally game out, what would he have done after this? The more interesting possibilities open up. I mean, what if he was most known for the jazz singer, which he would have been if he had directed it? It's the same question to me of what if he had stayed in Germany another eight years as long as he could have realistically and kept making you know, weird German expressionist birthday cakes of movies like The Wildcat. Um, I always like to think about, okay, would he have arrived at this kind of thing he's doing here and stuck with it if he had done something with a jazz singer? I don't know. I have no thesis here, except I like to think about these things. Every great director has this like shadow list of what ifs, you know? Yeah. It's a fascinating wormhole to go down always. Is there anything of yours that you would like to direct our audience to? That one Fire writing at a few places, as you said, Crooked Marquee, Slate, Lit Hub, LA Review Book. Otherwise, you can find all my writing at juliasermans.com. And on Twitter, I'm just at juliasermans. Once again, thank you so much for coming by. This has been great. I always love talking about Lubitsch with people who are way more qualified than me to do so. But thank you so much. It's been so much fun. It's been truly delightful. Next week, David Neary joins us to discuss The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season, and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 